Welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Today we are continuing Halloween and the Reformation Part 2. And then after Part 2, I will try to combine them into a single episode if you choose that method. Broke it up originally because there's a lot of info here. We want to make sure it's digestible. But let's go ahead and start talking about Part 2. Part 2 will go into pre-Reformation reform, the Reformation, modern Halloween traditions, and how it's viewed uh, in contemporary groups. And then we'll draw thoughts and conclusions. Um, and at the very end of doing all that, I will provide my own thoughts and conclusions. Now, before we begin, I do want to point out that Christ the Cure is subscriber-supported. The show would not continue if it wasn't for patrons. And so if you enjoy Christ the Cure, if you find the materials beneficial, even if you don't agree with me by the end of this episode, prayerfully consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Christ the Cure. And I do want to speak to one more thing really quickly, and that is in May of 2024 in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, there will be a conference on the Reformation. It's the Reformation Conference, a regional conference by G3. They partnered with Reformation Heritage Books to have this national conference on the Reformation. It looks like it's going to be a good time. I am going to be there. And if you are a listener of Christ of the Cure, you will get a discount on tickets. I will have that code for you hopefully by the end of the month as we wanted to have the promotion correspond with the Reformation series because it's a Reformation conference and I'm doing Reformation material. So keep an eye out for that discount. Um, if you want, you can go to ChristTheCure.org, find the place to subscribe with your email, and I will make sure to put up a post so you'll get notified by email when that code is available and you'll be able to get a discount on the Reformation conference and if you do go, I look forward to perhaps talking to you at that conference. So let's go ahead and jump into today's episode, beginning with the pre-Reformation reform. So in the last episode, we talked about the cult of the saints and where it developed. And all of that could be misleading when it comes to its acceptance or spread um, if we do not speak about those who pushed back against it. In fact, you may not even be aware that people were pushing back against it, and so I want to talk about that. So it is true that the cults of the martyrs sprung up very quickly, and concerns were fairly immediate. In fact, sidebar that it's not in my notes, then the Martyrdom of Polycarp, chapter 17, there's actually a brief text 
about pagans saying, let us take the bones of this martyr before the Christians might take them and turn to worship him instead. And so I find that particularly interesting as we get into today's particular introductory issue. And maybe you'll see why here in a second. But nonetheless, we talked about the cult of the martyrs development and that a big shift occurred in the fourth century. And that was when it was shifted from praying for the dead to praying to the dead. And this wasn't the only concern of the era. And so we're going to spend time discussing these different concerns, and then we'll see how that echoes into the Reformation. So in the earliest days of this cult of the saints, and I'm just going to use cult of the saints and cult of the martyrs kind of interchangeably, we find the cult being critiqued by A, those within the church, B, heretics, such as the Gnostics, C, pagans, D, Jews, and E, Muslims. Now, these critiques all followed the same lines of logic, beginning with the fact that the cult of the saints was built upon the cult of the dead, but also because this cult resembled the cult of heroes or the pagan pantheon, the pantheon being the polytheistic um, group of deities in the Greco-Roman world. Um, the cult of heroes requires a brief explanation since it has not been described so far. The cult of heroes was a feature in the Greek religion, which would be adopted by the Romans, where the Greeks had heroes and heroines such as Hercules and Achilles and Helen. Of course, it's Heracles, technically. Um, that would be surrounded in extraordinary myths and legends, and ultimately they would be worshipped alongside the gods of the pantheon. And with that came hero shrines, and hero shrines were littered throughout the Greek world since the 8th century BC, and the heroes were sometimes worshipped in a similar fashion as one's dead or the Greek gods. And so this kind of goes back to that ancestor worship, but also this, this pagan pantheon deity worship. Um... Heroes, quote, seem to possess an intermediary type of divinity and demonstrate a variety of Genesis powers and functions. And that's harder and waker in gods and religion and Hellenistic poetry. And again, I'll put these references on the landing page like I did last time. Now, whether or not uh, the cult of the heroes was diverse or uniform is debated. How, how this cult played out in different areas of the Mediterranean world is debated. And so... That's just something worth noting here. In fact, there's one journal article contesting the past hero cult and tomb cult and epic in early Greece that is worth looking into if you feel so compelled. Nonetheless, um, according to Harder and Waker, you had basically these different classifications of hero cults. You had gods, heroes, and the dead, and they could form these three basic groups within the Greco-Roman world with the gods of those who possess a universal and superior power, while the dead are confined to their particular burial spots with the least amount of power. And then gods would be um, more regional. They would have divine powers and sometimes would be universal despite their mortal origins. And a hero sometimes could also be um, head over a particular city. So there's a little bit of a hierarchy here, a little bit of a debate about, um, you know, what that looked like, but ultimately heroes in the hero cult could be distinguished from uh, the less powerful dead by their extraordinary achievements, their importance to, and their worship by an entire community or multiple communities. And these communities would invoke these heroes in order to gain their help or to harm their enemies because these heroes are in a privileged afterlife and have gained deification in one variety or another, right? So ultimately, the Greek religion, which would largely be adopted by the Romans, consisted of gods, regional deities, heroes, and diamones. And within this structure, the cult of the heroes played an important role 
within various cities, such as acting as a shared identity for the people, but also the cult of heroes included a cult of relics. So while there is a distinction between the pantheon of, you know, the Olympian gods, of course, there were also lesser gods who were also over cities. And then you had the Olympians and then you had the demigods um, who were often the heroes of the hero cult. So you have these different categories, but they're all kind of in the same boat. Um, so with this in place, Christians who defended the cults of the martyrs and the saints would need to defend against these charges. That is, that Christian saints were ultimately just a replacement of the Roman pantheon or the hero cults. Now, you may have heard that before in our day, but that was happening back then, too, at the inception of this cult of the saints. As the Catholic historian Bartlett notes in his work, Why Can the Dead Do Such Great Things? Saints and Worshippers from the Martyrs to the Reformation. Quote, there is a real resemblance, end quote. Both had shrines where one can go and get assistance or advice from. They both had annual rituals and annual festivals. They both could appear in dreams and visions. They could aid in battle or general instructions. They also had expectations for worship, and they also were invoked whether to help or harm. Quote, like the saints, the gods were numerous and often provided special patronage either for a city or state or a particular group. Athena was the patron goddess of Athens, and Artemis the patron goddess of the hunters, end quote. And that's Barlett. Barlett also contests that the cult of the saints has more in common with the cult of heroes, given that heroes were human and had tombs on earth. These humans could be demigods or deified after the death or both. Quote, crucially, unlike Zeus, Athena, and the like, they had lived on earth as humans and had undergone death and had an earthly tomb like Christian saints, end quote. So in light of all this, pagans viewed the cult of the saints as a stolen pantheon, an equivalent to their heroes or gods. This charge was also taken up by others that I listed above. That is, those within the church, that is, uh, Jews, Muslims, Gnostics, so on and so forth. Now, St. Augustine, in his famous work, The City of God, mentions these people groups, likely the pagans, who, quote, consider that the pagans worship the gods in temples while we worship the dead in their tombs. Augustine also points out in the same work that both had shrines, priests, altars, and relics, and yet he worked to clarify the difference between the two by pointing out that Christians believed the sacrifices were the Eucharist or communion to God and not to the martyrs themselves. Now, if one can remember correctly, though, Augustine was actually pushing back at this time against banquets that worked against his position here. It was only during his time that he was starting to correct or move the, the banquets from the cult of the dead to being a Eucharistic observance. This kind of goes to show that slippery slope or that blurred line where on paper it sounds good, but in practice it quickly devolved into something indistinguishable from its pagan neighbors. Now this whole argument, this point of contention continued throughout Augustine's life and into the presence, exemplified in the modern founding father in the study of the cult of the saints, a Catholic named Hippolyte Delhay. I think that's how you say his name, Delhay or Delhay. And he admits that these parallels existed and he gives many examples and he ultimately concludes, quote, when one has demonstrated among the Greeks a cult in which in all of its details recalls that of the saints with its tombs, translations, inventions, visions, or dubious of forged relics, what further parallels could one demand in order to establish that the cult of the saints is nothing but pagan survival? And that's in his work, The Legend of the Saints, page 156. And again, that will be in the notes. Now, after drawing that conclusion, he goes on to say that the distinction between the cult of the saints and the cult of the, the pagans is that the cult of the saints came from the cult of the martyrs, not from the cult of the heroes. 
So despite these resemblances, despite the other Catholic scholars saying that it has close resemblance with the cult of the heroes, the argument is because it came from the cult of the martyrs, which in the last episode I connected with the cult of the dead, it is nothing than mere pagan survival. However, these types of arguments were back in those older periods and was insufficient for those in those periods. And so while you could get the impression from the last episode that this cult's development occurred unanimously without pushback, that was simply not the case. At all times, in every century, there has been skeptical and critical voices against the cult of the martyrs, saints, relics, miracles, and of course, their festivities and the events and rituals around those festivities. It is worth noting that while the Bishop of Rome would have much influence in the West, it is also important to note that there was no ecumenical council to make these practices binding on the universal church. At the same time, they were popular, they were heavily held, so there is that balance of strike here. A local assembly in Egypt would actually gather and try to shut down critics, and these critics were pushing back against the idea of having services at a martyr's tomb, and this council would actually issue an anathema for those who denied this practice. But again, this was a local, not an ecumenical council. Still, one early critic spoken about by Calvin, actually, in his work against relics, provides us with a more clear picture of what this tension looked like in the 400s. An author named Vigilantius would write against the cult of the relics, calling it old paganism clothed in a pretext of religion. He would argue that the dead cannot pray for the living, that the saints did not have special intercessory power, and he would go after rituals such as keeping candles and night vigils at saints' shrines. The key responder to Vigilantius's um, argumentation was Jerome, who is famous for his Latin Vulgate. Uh, in his work, Jerome suggests that Vigilantius' position was not a lone ranger pushing back against the cult, but instead a force to be reckoned with. So that's worth consideration. It wasn't just this one person. In fact, Jerome would actually note that Vigilantius had supporters, and that included bishops, and that is in his work against Vigilantius. At the end of the day, however, it looks like Jerome won out in this battle as his position would set the trajectory in the West, leading to All Saints Day in the 7th century. Still, the debates wouldn't end there. There were debates in the East on the matter of icons, that's very famous in Nicaea too, which these icons were intrinsically tied to this cult of the saints and would be a major point of contention in the Reformation. We won't focus too much on icons, but this was an issue tied to all that. So during those debates, many spoke against the intercession of the saints and claimed that the souls of the saints could not appear on earth. Fast forwarding a little bit, in the 11th century, there was another rise in several groups who would come to reject the cult of the saints and their annual festivities. And when we have our writings where these groups were talked about and these commentaries on these groups continue through the 12th century, they are noting as doubting the intercession of the saints, putting no reliance in the saints, denying purgatory, and denying the prayers for the dead. Some outright mocked veneration, um, invocation, offerings, pilgrimages, and of course, the feast days. These groups were not created equal. Some were Gnostics, right, so, such as the Cathars, and others were precursors to the Reformation, such as the Waldensians. I'm pretty sure I pronounced that correctly. I'm not sure. Anyway, this group would attack various fabricated miracles done by the saints and claim that the saints were unable to hear the prayers addressed to them, and they denounced veneration given to the saints. This logically tied into rejecting intercession and the feasts around this cult. Another group that was a precursor to the Reformation that held these views was known as the Lollards, who were inspired by the theologian of John Wycliffe in the 14th century. 
They held all the same concerns, but they also emphasized the fact that there was a lot of immorality around the feast days and people would treat them as holidays for for immoral sensuality, but also they would critique the cost of the pilgrimages and the icons. So all of the survey is basically just to demonstrate very quickly this close relationship between these ancient critics and the reformers in terms of what they're critiquing, how they're critiquing, and what, what the problems were that they solved. So we will find many of these same critiques being levied by the reformers going forward. So now we can get into the Reformation. So far, it's been shown that in terms of Samhain, uh, the pagan origins of Halloween are difficult to substantiate, but this doesn't mean that there isn't a case to be made for a pagan origin of Halloween, given its tight connection to the cult of the dead in the early centuries. And in addition to this, the cult of the saints parallels with the pagan pantheon and the cult of the heroes. So this also includes, of course, the assimilation of rituals and practices. Even while Christians were attempting to strip some of those connections, those general fundamental foundational similarities remained. So let's talk about the Reformation. We highlighted Luther's move into his critique of the saints, which began as an indictment against indulgences. We talked about that at the end of part one. But at the same time, the cult of the saints had radically affected all of life during the period of the Reformation, leading to numerous objections on various grounds, most of which we simply cannot cover here. What we do know is that the Reformers, despite their differences, universally denounced the cult of the saints and what it produced. Yet, the approaches in the timelines amongst them are different. Luther, for example, seemed to have a harder time letting go of his fondness for the saints, and likewise exhibited a more tender approach in calling people under his care to move on from them. Others, however, took a firm approach and, you know, ripped the band-aid off kind of thing. The issues that the Reformers took, leading to hundreds of pamphlets, sermons, and debates against the cult of the saints were multiple. Many of the critiques were levied at the clergy and the monks who would abuse the cult of the saints and its attachments, such as relics, indulgences, pilgrimages, etc., for their own personal gain. Luther was most concerned with how the cult led to works righteousness and especially to how Christ is seen as non-approachable and that you need this intermediary in order to approach Christ. You needed merits to approach Christ, and so you had to go through a saint to get to Christ. This means that ultimately Luther's concern was people would pick a favorite patron saint because they were more approachable because of the way that Christ had been painting as a judge. Now, they would complain that the cult of the saints led to a waste in time, money, and energy. As pamphlets noted, the Pope sold plentiful of indulgences to build their churches, cloisters, cells, chapels, altars, wooden saints, and more. By the way, a great book if you want to really dig into this particular issue is Protestants and the Cult of the Saints in German-speaking Europe, 1517-1531, by Hemming. And uh, that's going to be my primary source for this particular section. Now, one of the most famous issues regarding the saints concerns the destructions of icons and images, but like I said, we're not going to particularly focus there. People were dependent upon the saints. They treated them as deities and superstition, despite alleged distinctions between mere veneration and worship. In addition to this, the, the poor would actually use whatever scraps they have in order to take these pilgrimages, buy indulgences, see a relic, and find a miracle through them, and at the same time, partake in debauchery on these feast days and those pilgrimages. The reformers were particularly concerned about these groups or orders of monks and their abuses of the cult of the saints. Luther and others came out of these orders of monks and grew into their critiques with numerous complaints. Now, one of these complaints dealt with the way that the monks understood and devoted themselves to the saints rather than Christ. 
Furthermore, because there was a hierarchy being developed, the superiority of the saints made further dependence on the laity who were far below the superior status of canonical sainthood. And when I say canonical sainthood, I mean those saints that were deemed by the church to actually be saints because not everyone was considered a saint. You had to gain canonical status. And so Luther, reflecting on his relationship to Christ in this climate, notes along with the reformers that in these orders, Christ was viewed as a grim judge and tyrant and the grace and consolation could only be found in running to Mary and the saints and hoping for their intercession on their behalf because no one was righteous enough to approach God the Son. In addition to this, the begging orders of monks, that is, those monks who lived only on alms, took significant critiques because of their incessant sales of relics. Records detail that these begging monks would collect money everywhere in exchange for significant indulgences. Relics were also critiqued because they would offer up these miracles if you gave a significant offering, and a lot of these relics were just simply made up and ridiculous. It was not only the monks who abused the saints, but also the regular clergy. One Protestant, um, as recorded by Hemming, states, For a long time we have clung to the saints and pushed God under our feet. It is pitiful that we are so blind and have sought no consolation where we should have. But our priests and monks have led us astray and have tricked us with fraudulent figures. In one they poured oil on the back of their head so that it poured out from its eyes, and another blood so that it would sweat blood, and so forth. About this they say, Look, isn't this a great miracle? Thus the poor... Wretched peasants have been taken in and have invoked the saints and abandoned God. In addition to this, the monks' various vows to saints was worthy of critique. The Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli would say, quote, After Christ alone, we are to carry our cross without hesitation, not after Dominic, Benedict, Francis, Anthony, or Bernard. Should Francis or Dominic or any others be among us today, they would undoubtedly say, Oh, you fools, what are you doing? Do you not know that you are not to have any other teacher, father, or leader but God alone. Why do you attach yourselves to us who all of our lives adhere to God only? End quote. So abuses abound by the clergy, but reformers were also concerned with the laity. Superstition and disorder were fed by the reliance on the saints, but not only this, but Protestant writers reflected on awareness of the cult's connection to the ancient pantheon. The same thing we were talking about at the beginning of this episode. Johannes Brenz states in a sermon concerning the saints, quote, The pagans had two kinds of gods. Some were venerated because they bestowed favors, and some because they warded off evil spirits, such as fever, pestilence, and so forth. We, too, venerate some saints because they bestow favors, such as Nicholas, and some because they turn away evil, such as Valentine and Sebastian. He concludes this portion of his analysis unequivocally with a summary of paganism. In one piece of literature, there is a dialogue between a fictional Christian and a Jew appears wherein the Jew compares the Christian saints to gods and goddesses of the pagans, saying, it is as if the only God was not powerful enough, end quote. So you can further see some of those connections as Jews were some of the ones critiquing the cult of the saints. Literature like this abounds during the Reformation, pointing out that people worship and devote themselves to patron saints, bringing them offerings, making pilgrimages to their shrines to see fabricated miracles and bones that may just be remains of a pig. The Reformers also critiqued the people for drunkenness during their saints' feast days or attending brothels during their pilgrimages. Further, while there were attempts to separate veneration from worship on paper, in practice, they were indistinguishable. What is important to point out is that these critiques during the Reformation were against a long and popular tradition. However, again, they were not alone in these critiques throughout the centuries. There are many narratives that the Reformation was doing something novel in its critiques. This is another example of where it was not. But at the end of the day, this all came down to authority. 
because in the midst of many objections, one foundation upheld all those objections in that sola scriptura. When it came to both the theological and ethical issues, it was scripture that upheld the reformers' arguments. Scripturally, the reformers argued against works righteousness, indulgences, treasury of merits, invocation, intermediary states, and of course, the pantheon of saints that were leading to idolatry. They argued that calling upon the saints had no warrant in scripture and that any intercession found was actually found upon those on earth, not between those on earth and those already passed on. In fact, one level of the debate was the absence of any reference to saints who had departed having contact with those on earth. The reality that everyone in Christ was a saint was also another point of contention as it eliminated that hierarchy that would cause dependence upon the saint. What needs to be stressed here is that the reformers took no issue. They took no issue with the idea that the saints were praying for the church based on the imagery found in Revelation. That is something in our context that we we deny. The reformers were fine with that. The saints pray for the church. We see that in Revelation. But what they took issue with was the idea that we should pray to those who had passed and the presupposition that the saint had the capacity to hear, recognize, know, and move in response to such a prayer after they had passed from the earth. When parallels are drawn between asking loved ones to pray for you and praying to the saints, the distinction is clear. The former is on earth. You are not communicating with those who have passed and you're making a request to them. You're not praying to them who are in the next realm. In addition to all of this, intercession of the saints was not a mere request for intercession or prayers on one's behalf, but instead it was linked to asking a saint to do something themselves for you or to rely on their merits in order to give more weight to our prayers as they approach Christ on our behalf. What is sure is that every critique levied at the cult of the saints from the reformers was laced in scriptural backing. The general disposition was that there was simply no foundation in scripture for veneration of the saints and blaming the papacy for leading people into vain fantasy and trickery that does not please God, but instead fills the Pope's wallet. Basically, any text you could find on idolatry or images were brought up against the practice, but especially the text about Christ himself being the high priest and the intercessor. John was cited when Jesus says, ask me anything in my name. And Timothy was cited where Paul writes that Jesus is the one mediator between God and men. Hemming notes that the pronouncement that Christ is the only intercessor shows up in many texts. And nearly every condemnation of pagan idolatry was enlisted in the effort to discredit the use of saints' images. And saints were equated to other gods, false gods, strange gods, false prophets, idols, and the like, end quote. For the reformers, the cult of the saints was not merely honoring a cloud of witnesses, but blatant idolatry where the commandment to have no other god was sufficient for their argumentation. This became especially potent when it came to the offerings, shrines, and holy days. Communications with those who had passed, who had died, even if alive, was flatly condemned in the Old Testament, making for such a practice cut down at the root. Deuteronomy 18.11 regarding consulting the dead, being detestable to the Lord, would be cited among other texts, indicating the limitation of the past saint. Some would also counter with texts such as Luke 16, where Lazarus communicates with Abraham, but this would be pointed out to be a bad argumentation, as Lazarus and Abraham were both in the realm of the dead. Verses like Jeremiah 17.5 recited that cursed is the man that trusts in man, along with other texts of similar sentiments, such as Psalm 118, 8-9. New Testament texts were invoked in a similar fashion, such as when John falls at the angel's feet in Revelation, is corrected to instead worship God. A logical argument would be presented as well regarding the alleged miracles of the saints, where the reformers would argue that no saint worked miracles in their own power, but instead by God. 
they are not worthy of undeserving veneration for those miracles that are attributed to God. A final note is that the Reformers still value the saints as examples of the faith, and they would regularly cite the theologians of the church in their theological reflections. And this set the precedent for recognizing that those who pass should not be forgotten, but that to institute rituals and religion for the sake of them was to cross a line. While men can receive and be shown honor, relics, shrines, icons for the purpose of vigils, and icons for the purpose of being prayed to were clearly beyond mere veneration. While the distinction looked good on paper, its outworking was a violation of scripture. So when we get to the point after the Reformation, the struggles on the cult of the saints were not immediately resolved, but it was a long and slow process to move congregants to rely on Christ rather than the cult of the saints. Christ as God the Incarnate could be too intimidating to approach, and so the temptation was to move to a saint in order to approach him on their behalf. Even when it comes to certain feasts, there were some reformers who would condemn the cult of the saints as it was articulated by Rome, but still allow tapering off of the liturgical observances of saint days, including All Saints Day. While all Protestant traditions modified how they viewed the saints, only some branches retained a normative observance of All Saints Day and thus Halloween. The Reformed tradition in particular, and the Puritans, would reject Halloween, though along with other holidays. And you can see um, the work by James... Um, holy Time and Sacred Space in Puritan New England. Barlett describes this as, quote, The cult of the saints virtually disappeared from Protestant Europe. Pilgrimages, relics, liturgies of the saints, and most images had gone. So what's our conclusion? In the context of the Reformation's theological legacy, the objections to Halloween extend beyond what we generally think of. The struggle first began with authority, that is, Scripture, but then it went into the nature of faith, a rejection of the cult of the saints, and then exclusivity for Christ's role as mediator between humanity and God. For the reformers, led by figures like Martin Luther, the central tenet of the movement was the primacy of scripture. But at the end of the day, the rejection of Halloween and All Saints Day was according to its historical roots, that is, around the cult of the saints. It was not merely a cultural or merely pagan origins, though the reformers argued that but also a deep-seated concern for preserving the purity of the faith and worship as defined by Scripture and the teaching of the Reformers. Still, there are Protestants who are more and more celebrating All Saints Day, but stripped from the elements that the Reformers took specific issue with. The reasoning behind it being that these saints are indeed added to our great cloud of witnesses and worthy of honor, just as we are called to honor each other in our day-to-day -day lives. Now, what this looks like in Protestant circles differs pretty greatly, but generally, there is an agreement that the saints are not seen as mediators or to be prayed to, but instead examples that we can remember and pay homage to without the papist extra-biblical tradition. Now let's get into modern Halloween. So it took some time for Halloween to actually gain traction in the United States, but when it did, many developments occurred and continue to occur to this day. Ultimately, the traditions that we know in our culture regarding Halloween are heavily debated and have a different story attached to them almost every time I read about them. What many accounts seem to agree upon are that these traditions are modern, and when I say modern, I mean that they haven't arisen until the last 500 years. Now, while these practices are still a factor in whether one will consider celebrating Halloween, they're not necessarily connected to the original Halloween. The best way that they could be connected to our modern context is the theme of death and that darkness of death and the ghouls and ghosts and things of that nature because of the original celebration around the cult of the dead and honoring the dead. 
So we're going to look very briefly at some of these uh, traditions. We're going to paint a broad picture, but remember that these origins seem to differ and can be debated, making it quite difficult. So let's look at them. So when it comes to the jack-o'-lantern, this is a tradition from the 1800s of a man named Jack who was a trickster and evil. He outwitted the devil, which had him cast out of hell. And following this, Jack took a glowing coal and placed it inside of a turnip as a lantern to light his way as he wandered the earth. And you can see that in uh, Hollowed in America Contemporary Customs and Performances by, well, Jack Santino. Uh, this story appears in variations, but the core kind of remains the same. So even if you find differences, you'll find the same story. Now, according to some sources, this story was actually a folk tale that explained a phenomenon that occurred in marshlands uh, and bods where a light would flicker from gases. And often it's connected to Fool's Fire, Fairy Lights, or Will-o'-the-Wisp. And this kind of has connection to uh, fallen angels, especially with the imagery of fairies in the Irish culture. And that could be said to have some parallels with Jacks being cast out of hell and walking around uh, with his turnip. Now, eventually the story would reshape entirely due to its adoption in American culture, especially with the legend of Sleepy Hollow in 1820. Carving pumpkins seems to have begun sometime in the 1890s, and from there it's history. Regarding costumes, it's hard to find one narrative on this one too. Um, the common one is that these were costumes for Samhain, and warding off evil spirits. However, that's difficult to substantiate as we talked about in part one. Other traditions link wearing costumes to the era of the bubonic plague in France, which is kind of interesting. And basically what it was is that after the plague, where France lost a great deal of population, imagery of popes, kings, ladies, knights, monks, peasants, you know, just name a bunch of people, were painted on the tombs and eventually a dance in commemoration of the dead to remember them um, would ensue where people would dress up as these figures and sometimes this would be integrated with All Souls Day um, on November 2nd and eventually would come to include um, people in various stages of life or states of life. Um, so the French dressed up on All Souls Day but not Halloween and this will kind of be seen with the trick-or-treating too. We don't really know how it got moved over to Halloween but the theory is that when the British colonies in North America in the 1700s first had French Catholics come in, they started mingling, right? And so that's, that's another one that's kind of hard to tell. So for trick-or-treating, uh, its origins are a little bit easier, but, but I mean that pretty, pretty strenuously. It's a little bit easier. Some have linked it to souling in the 9th century, where the poor would go door-to-door -door asking for soul cakes in exchange for a promise to pray for the souls of the homeowner's relatives. Um, in this view, children would eventually take it up, but go door-to-door -door asking for gifts such as food, money, and ale. And according to History.com, in Scotland and Ireland, uh, young people took part in a tradition called guising, that is dressing up in a costume and accepting offerings from various households. But rather than pledging to pray for the dead, they would sing a song, recite a poem, tell a joke, or perform another sort of trick before collecting their treat, which typically consisted of fruit, nuts, and coins. Now, some argue that it has more to do with Guy Fawkes Day more than anything, and so let's explain that. Following the English Reformation, Roman Catholicism was suppressed and resistance occurred on occasion with some more being violent than others. And one example of that violence was in 1605, there was a plot to blow up the Protestant King James I and Parliament, and this ideally would lead to a revolution for the Catholics against the English Protestants. But the plot was foiled when a guy named Guy Fawkes was arrested, hanged, and the plan just kind of dwindled out. His failure came to be known as Guy Fawkes Day for England on November 5th, 
And it is said when people observed it, they would put on masks and heckle Catholics demanding treats at the threat of tricks. In addition to this, the celebration had community bonfires, sometimes called bonefires, as they would burn models of the Pope. In the 19th century, children took it up, um, and by night they started wearing masks of Guy Fawkes, and they went door-to-door asking for treats. Now, within the colonies of America, some celebrated Guy Fawkes Day, and this would increase as immigrants came over in the mid-19th century, and this would continue through the 20th century. By the 1920s, Pranks became the activities of choice because of tension during the Great Depression. And, quote, one theory suggests that excessive pranks of Halloween led to widespread adoption of an organized community-based trick-or-treating tradition in the 1930s. This trend would abruptly curtail, however, with the outbreak of World War II, when sugar rationing meant that there were few treats to hand out. At the height of this post-war baby boom, trick-or-treating reclaimed its place among other Halloween customs. It quickly became the standard practice for millions of children in American cities and newly built suburbs. No longer constrained by the sugar rationing, candy companies capitalized on the lucrative ritual, launching national advertising campaigns specifically aimed at Halloween, end quote. And that is history.com. Again, I'll put that link in the landing page. So while the practice has more vivid theories, there are still multiple threads being pulled that makes it difficult to track. For instance, how did Guy Fox Day on November 5th move to the 31st? if that theory is viable, but ultimately it it seems to just be because America is a melting pot and all these groups came together and basically created its own new American thing. And you kind of see the snowballing, right? Uh, When it comes to the inclusions of things such as witches and other imagery, um, we find that really capitalism became the main thrust of that, the same way that candy campaigns began to sell more candy. So with witches, in particular, it's just kind of an interesting story. They found their way into the Halloween season because of greeting cards. The greeting card industry was doing well in the 19th century. And in the 1890s, new cards came out, Halloween cards, and they would come out with images of witches, jack-o'-lanterns, ghosts, and children being frighted by you know figures and masks until the Halloween greeting card business became non-lucrative in 1930, which honestly, Halloween greeting cards is kind of weird. And the history here is interesting uh, because it really does show how capitalism is feeding into a lot of things. And we see that today with with all the the parades, festivals, amusement park um, sections dedicated to Halloween. And of course, you can't go into your your local store without there being a whole Halloween section and things like that. Um, And so it's just very interesting. Now, most of the innovations we know of in our culture seem to be kind of built within our culture but they began playing off of evil themes that were kind of colored innocently. And as time has progressed, it needed to become more shocking, as, as does everything. And so here we are, where there's this perpetual darkening of the holiday um, over the decades from the 50s to today. And that's just indicative of a culture that's deeply sick. So let's talk about neo-pagans in our modern day. Today, Halloween varies from state to state in its severity in terms of you know how dark it is. Overall, one of the issues that arises often is um, real neo-pagan rituals and practices that are now tied to the day, okay? So whether the origins of Halloween are actually linked to Samhain, many new pagans or neo-pagans are convinced regardless, and, you know, there's records of detestable acts on Halloween basically found each year. But what needs to be known is that neo-paganism that movement is young and it has its roots in the 20th century. 
If you want to learn more about that, you can go to BritaCanada.com um, on modern neo-paganism or modern paganism. But let's just go ahead and go through some of it. So this is firstly important because we cannot base our ideas off of these groups that not only, A, try to recreate old pagan religions, but B, they try to subvert Christianity via these polemics. So new paganism and its attempts to recreate old pagan religions generally is diverse because of how old pagan religions are first based on folklore, and then these groups are not all created the same. Some of them are more like fanciful, and others are more um, historically or archaeologically based. But this also means that we should take their claims at face value, especially because their disposition is taking these pagan rituals back from Christianity. They have a disposition against Christianity that needs to be taken into account whenever we're evaluating their claims. So this is all to say that neo-pagans mocking Christians each year for celebrating an alleged pagan festival is no accident. And part of their overall ideology to reclaim what Christians stole um, becomes the basis for that. Yet, what was allegedly stolen is up for debate, giving dubious accounts of many pagan observances, right? We, we talk about this with, with Christmas, with Easter, and, and now we're talking about with Samhain. So this group of neo-pagans includes a group known as the Wiccans. A lot of people know the Wiccans, but Wicca's first appearance in the mainstream was actually in the 1950s. And they believe that their religion was, quote, the survival of a pre-Christian witch's religion, an idea later rejected by historians. And that's from the Britannica um, article. I don't know if I ever say that word correctly. Anyway, in the 60s and 70s, the Wiccan movement found syncretism with various movements, especially second wave feminism, which is interesting, and the early homosexual and bisexual communities. So it was in the 70s where modern pagan religions had a particular gain in traction in the U.S. and in Britain in particular. Various groups formed, such as the Neo-Druids, that is a new type of, um, well, they're trying to reclaim the Druid movement, right? And others such as, you know, the, the advocates of heathenry, right, being heathens. And so by the 2000s, the Neo-Pagans had grown substantially, but a shift occurred where they were actually turning to worship particular pantheons such as the Greco-Roman gods or the ancient Egyptian gods. In this whole ordeal, a movement arose called the Reconstructionists who viewed themselves as purists against the Wiccans and the Druids. The reason why is because the Wiccans and the Druids typically just assimilated various ideologies and myths for their basis or their theology and their practices, right? The Reconstructionists, however, were more purist in that they were concerned with what the actual historical data said about their observances and their practices. So when it comes to Halloween, some of these groups, such as the Wiccans, will observe under the heading of Samhain, and they consider this the Witch's New Year, and they establish an altar and tools for divination and relics surrounding death. And you can go read up on that. I have sources. I, I don't know that you're really going to want to go read them, but I, they're going to be in the bio. Um... So some claim that trick-or-treating is part of uh, the ritual and scaring off evil spirits. But again, this is based on assumption not proven uh, via connections to Samhain. But a common thread is saying that meals should be prepared in order to dine with those individuals who had passed into the next realm. Now, an interesting thing to note is that on one Neo-Pagan's sources, they state, despite occurring at similar times and containing similar themes, Samhain and Halloween are not the same holiday. Halloween, short for All Hallows' Eve, is celebrated on and around October 31st and tends to be more family-focused. On the other hand, Samhain is more religious in focus and spiritually observed by practitioners. There are some more lighthearted observances in honor of the dead through Samhain, but the underlying tone of Samhain is one of serious religious practice rather than a lighthearted make-believe reenactment. 
Today's pagan Samhain rites are benevolent, and although they are somber and centered on death, they do not involve human or animal sacrifices, as some rumors may claim. Another difference between Samhain and Halloween is that most Samhain rituals are held in private rather than public. And that's from Gaia.com on Modern Paganism 13 Rituals to celebrate Samhain. But the source makes a distinction between the cultural observance of Halloween and Samhain. In fact, saying Halloween that it's not really a religious observance, which is kind of interesting. But it detaches the two and it claims that the former is not inherently religious while the latter Samhain is. And I find this interesting because this ultimately means that uh, just like Catholics who separate the traditional Halloween from All Hallows' Eve and All Saints' Day, some neo-pagans recognize Halloween as a mere cultural phenomenon too. Just kind of interesting. So in addition to this issue are the number of Satanists that have co-opted the day. One article summarizes the issue well. Anton LaVey formed the Church of Satan in 1966 and wrote the Satanic Bible within a few years. It is important to note that this was the first organized religion to ever label itself as Satanic. LaVey stipulated three holidays for his version of Satanism. The first and foremost most important date is each Satanist's own birthday. Uh, let me skip ahead a little bit. Um, and the two other holidays are one I can't pronounce, to be honest, on April 30th and Halloween on October 31st. Both dates were often considered witch holidays in popular culture, and thus they became linked with Satanism. LaVey adopted Halloween less because of its inherently satanic meaning in the date, but more as a joke on those who superstitiously feared it. Contrary to some conspiracy theories, Satanists do not view Halloween as the devil's birthday. Satan is a symbolic figure in the religion. Furthermore, the Church of Satan describes October 31st as the fall climax and a day to costume according to one's inner self or reflect a recently deceased loved ones. The article then asks, but is Halloween satanic? So yes, Satanists do celebrate Halloween as one of their holidays. However, this is very recent adoption. Halloween was celebrated long before Satanists had anything to do with it. Therefore, historically, Halloween is not satanic. Today, it only makes sense to call it satanic when referencing its celebration by the actual Satanists. And that is from learnreligious.com is Halloween satanic. In addition to this, there is a quote often attributed to LaVey that states, quote, I am glad that Christians let their kids worship the devil at least one night of the year, end quote. The problem is, however, that there seems to be no source available for this quote. It is likely that if he did state it, he probably said it out of sarcasm, especially given that LaVey's Satanism was less spiritual and more naturalistic and hedonistic because LaVey himself was actually an atheist. I remember reading the Satanic Bible a long time ago before I came to Christ, and it's basically that. It's basically self-indulgent humanism, basically what you would think of as secular humanism, um, but with a um, hedonistic, you know, do what feels good kind of twist. So that said, um, having pagans or Satanists or neo-pagans really Co-op the day is not enough to abandon it or to, to call it pagan in its roots, especially if these movements, you know, date after, long after, like into the 19th, 20th century, right? Um, and so, as I have argued with Christmas and Easter, we need to view these holidays on its own intention, on its own terms. Um, and the same goes for commercialization. You know, everything is commercialized. We talk about this with Christmas and Easter. And this is not a good enough reason to throw the baby out with the bathwater, we can parallel this with marriage. Marriage is heavily commercialized. It's one of the most expensive things. And it's also co-opted by society and twisted. We know that uh, given our culture wars today. Yet we do not abandon marriage because of these things. Instead, we preserve and hold on to it because of its foundation and its roots. And so that goes back to the question, what are the roots of Halloween? But first, let's talk about modern day Catholics. So contemporary Catholic commentators lament that the innovations of costumes and candy 
have overshadowed the religious roots of the observance of All Hallows' Eve, which again is inseparably linked to All Saints' Day. And in the contemporary settings, All Saints' Day is also an obligatory observance within the Catholic Church. While there are other saint commemorations, they are not obligatory like All Saints' Day is. One website speaks to the foundations of Halloween well. It says, quote, The feast was originally the date of the Pantheon's dedication, May 13, 609, and the date of an already existing feast in the East. It was later moved to its current date on the Roman calendar, where it is followed by the commemoration of all souls, that is, those righteous dead being purified in purgatory, end quote. And that is from EWTN.com on, you know, Seasons of Feast Days, All Saints Day. So at its foundational roots, it is a cult of the saints holiday in some shape or form. The Protestant Reformation threw a wrench in the whole thing. Having the 95 Theses being commemorated on the 31st, you know, is quite an interesting dynamic because it's the opposite position. If we throw in some traditions like the Guy Fox Day, then basically it becomes a Protestant mockery of Catholicism's failed plot to, um, you know, make the English Reformation fail. And so there's a lot of interesting dynamics going on here. Now, what you may not know is that Catholics often have the same discussions that we do on Halloween. The question being, should Christians observe Halloween? But in this context, it's most specifically, should Christians observe all the extra cultural stuff? Generally, I have found that Catholics will say yes um, underneath these principles of guarding oneself from the darkness and approaching it with wisdom. They often state that those cultural additions um, to this holy day are fine, but they should not be the dominant theme of the day, right? It should be a focus on uh, prepping for All Saints Day. And so for Catholics, the bottom line is that it's an ancient holiday that is theirs to observe, and the tacked-on fun practices are not a problem without moderation and wisdom, right? So we have some Protestants that argue that same way about you know moderation and wisdom. So modern-day Protestantism on Halloween there's a range of positions and I try to list them out in my head and categorize them. And it's really difficult because there's overlap, right? So considering, you know, observing Halloween in terms of, you know, the costumes, trick-or-treating, et cetera, these are the positions that I have observed that I can think of. Um, but again, remember that there is overlap and blending together. And so neatly packaging the views is very difficult. I Almost tried to make a chart, but couldn't bring myself to do it because it was just, I didn't feel like trying to figure that out. So here's the list of perspectives I came up with. First, Halloween is pagan and should be abstained from. Second, Halloween is Catholic and should be abstained from. Third, Halloween is cultural, but focused on things abhorrent to God and therefore should be abstained from. Fourth, Halloween is pagan in root, but has radically changed by culture and it's fine to observe or alternates can be considered. Five, Halloween may be pagan, Catholic, or cultural, but it is an opportunity for outreach and evangelism with clean alternatives. When I say clean, I mean not, you know, darkness, wicked, blood, gore, all that stuff. Uh, six, Halloween is Christian and should be reclaimed, and it is fine to observe it as a religious observance that is for the saints with fun activities being also permissible, okay? So this is those Protestants that say we should observe All Saints Day or commemorate the saints in that way. Seven, Halloween is Christian and should be reclaimed and fine to observe with clean alternatives. When I say in this position, Halloween is Christian, I'm specifically talking about those people who view it as a Christian holiday on a very surface level. Like, oh, it's just about, you know, remembering the saints. Um, number eight, Halloween is cultural and it's fine to observe with proper wisdom. So it's purely cultural. 
Number nine, Halloween is best understood as Reformation Day and can be celebrated as such with or without the, the extra cultural stuff. So like I said, some of these blend together. And so to neatly package these views gets very difficult. Um, like, for example, the alternative positions could be kind of seen as, you know, abstaining, but it's debatable. Another question kind of comes up with fall festivals. Like, what do we do about fall festivals in general? And I'll kind of answer that question here. I, I view fall festivals as being seen as alternatives, but generally not really because they can fall as early as the beginning of October to the end. You know, there's spring festivals, there's fall festivals, there's summer festivals. And so I don't know that you can necessarily attach to Halloween, though sometimes they are. Um, I've seen both where it's linked directly to Halloween and others where it's detached. Mine is, you know, seasonal vegetation like pumpkins. Um, so that one's a little bit out there. I'm not considering that one. What gets tricky is that we need to ask when we're talking about celebrating Halloween, are we discussing celebrating the Eve before All Saints Day? That is with this religious focus or just the culture games now associated with the day? Because some people try to blend those and say, well, we're taking back the Christian holiday by trick-or-treating. Well, that's not, that's not really the same thing. You, you can't conflate that. You can't say you're taking it back by trick-or-treating. Um, you can say that you're countering pagan culture by evangelism and outreach and trick-or-treating with tracks and stuff like that. But you can't say that you're observing, you know, like All Saints Eve or All Saints Day while you're trick-or-treating because that's not what All Saints Day or All Saints Eve was or is. Like there's a mass that you go to at night if you're a Catholic to prep for All Saints Day. But most of the time that we're talking about Halloween, we're talking about all the cultural games now, um, you know, trick-or-treating and stuff like that. Um, but in its most strict sense, Halloween is a Catholic holiday rooted in All Saints Day and everything else is kind of extra. So let's move into the drawing thoughts and conclusion section. So as we have seen, Halloween is quite the special case. We have several factors at play. In essence, we have different versions of Halloween to really consider, whether it be a religious uh, practice in a pagan sense or a Catholic sense or merely a cultural, American cultural uh, sense. And, and then if we throw Reformation Day into the mix, then we now have another dilemma, whether or not it's a Protestant celebration on the same day. And this doesn't include the reality that sometimes Reformation Day is observed in a similar way to Halloween with costumes and candy. So you have this Protestant religious plus American cultural. And so you have these different combinations of what Halloween actually is. So the question of whether or not Christians should participate in Halloween has sparked debate and reflections within the Christian community for decades. This episode, I mean, actually, you can go farther than decades because this was a conversation happening during the Reformation whenever they were first detesting Halloween. But that's, again, in a more religious or Catholic sense. This episode certainly will not solve anything for you. In fact, it it could probably complicate the matter for you more. It might actually help you settle things, but it most likely will not. At the end of the day, you must simply not participate if your mind is not settled. And the reason why is because according to Paul, if you do something like this, if you participate and you're not settled on it, you are doing so in sin. It is counted as a sin. You can go read Romans 14 and study that there. So let's consider the general positions um, and... Do the pros and cons. So non-participation is our first one. Non-participation involves abstaining from Halloween activities altogether, viewing them as incompatible with one's Christian faith. Generally, this position argues from the position that Halloween is so clouded in darkness that to participate is to forfeit what God says about living in truth, light, and life, right? 
Sometimes this view maintains that it's also damaging to the Christian witness, even despite outreach events, as those events are generally seen as merely different ways to participate in the observance. A less prominent position in this non-participation category is abstaining because the holiday roots in Catholicism. That's really what we've been talking about in these two parts, but that's the lesser position. So let's talk about the pros. The pros of this position maintains religious purity and avoids any potential conflicts with Christian beliefs, and it demonstrates a commitment to upholding one's faith and convictions. So what about the cons? Well, the cons are that it may isolate individuals or families from community events and neighborhood interactions, but it could also be perceived as judgmental or exclusionary by those who do participate in Halloween. So what's option number two? Alternative celebrations. Opting for alternative celebrations on October 31st provides an opportunity for a positive, faith-centered engagement with the community. This approach fosters you know, fellowship and gratitude and sometimes the commemoration of Reformation Day, but it may require significant planning and have limited community reach. This can be done via you know, costume parties, movie nights, and so forth. In this category, we can place those who would observe Reformation Day and those who teach about the Protestant heritage during this time. The pros here, it offers a positive and faith-centered way to engage a local community on October 31st because that's really what it's about. It's providing a local alternative and it allows for fellowship and sometimes the commemoration of the Reformation period, which is a good church history lesson, right? It educates about the Reformation and what occurred in the Protestant tradition. The cons, it requires organization and hosting alternate events, which can be challenging logistically speaking. It may have limited reach compared to traditional Halloween activities, and it could be seen as equally elevating men as Catholicism does by being so focused on the Reformation, or even being contrary to the Reformation ideals by recognizing the Reformation in that way. Position three, redeeming or taking back the holiday. Redeeming the holiday involves participating in Halloween with a different perspective, often using it as a platform for faith sharing and acts of kindness. This approach may require you know, planning and outreach efforts, but it offers a potential for positive impact for the gospel. In this category, I'd place, you know, trunk or treats, uh, tractor treating, kind of made that one up, you know, you go out and you do trick-or-treating, but you give out tracks at the same time, or participating simply by passing out candy from your from your own doorstep and evangelizing. In this category, we can place those who hold to um, you know the, the fighting for or the bringing back or the emphasizing the Christian roots of the holiday. And the pros of this are um, it provides an opportunity to engage with the community and share one's faith. It allows one to demonstrate acts of kindness and outreach during Halloween celebrations. The cons is that it requires careful planning and consideration of how to you know, effectively use Halloween as a platform for the gospel. Um, some individuals may not be receptive to literature on this day. Um, and in addition to this, would be specifically related to the Christian roots and discerning how to properly observe All Saints Day in a Protestant fashion. So in that category are those people that want to emphasize the Christian roots and figure out how to do All Saints Day properly, you know, like within a Protestant um, tradition. Uh, position number four, I have as cautious participation. You know, cautious participation allows for children to engage in Halloween activities while maintaining boundaries aligned with Christian values. This approach is really just like, just go do the things. Uh, it enables families to participate in community events, but necessitates, you know, careful costume and activity choices. You know, you have to make sure you go to the right neighborhoods, that you pick out the right costumes, that you're not going somewhere where, um, you know, there is potentially compromising. And really, this could kind of fall into, you know, go to an alternate celebration kind of route. 
Um, and the pros with this is that it permits children to participate in Halloween activities while setting boundaries aligned with Christian values. It allows families to engage in neighborhood interactions and community events. The cons is that it requires careful selection of costumes and activities to ensure that they align with Christian principles. But another con is that it may still expose children to elements contrary to the faith, even with caution. The last one I have is observing cultural Halloween with Reformation Day. That is observing uh, cultural Halloween as Reformation Day, combining the two observances, celebrating Halloween while emphasizing the significance of the Reformation Day. This approach encourages community engagement, but it requires careful integration to make it meaningful. So the pros would be that it blends the cultural celebration with the commemoration of the, the Protestant heritage and engages the community while emphasizing a significant historical event. The cons, it requires you know thoughtful integration of the two observances uh, to maintain their, their distinct meanings. But in practice, Reformation Day will be overclouded by the cultural observance. It's, it's hard to make that Reformation Day. So those are my general like five positions that I think are viable. They, they're kind of more broad than like the list I gave in the last section. Before I give you my position, I want to talk briefly about Romans 14 and the principles outlined in Romans 14, which provide guidance for Christians grappling with this issue and how they address other believers. Basically, you have to make sure that you acknowledge diverse beliefs because at the heart of Romans 14 is an exhortation for Christians to receive one another without passing judgment on these types of disputable matters. In the context of Halloween, this means acknowledging that fellow believers may hold these varying viewpoints on the appropriateness of celebrating the holiday. And it's essential to respect these differences to foster unity within the church, especially if the heart of one's um, you know, position is to do that outreach on Halloween that you may choose to abstain for or vice versa. Um, just see the strengths and weaknesses in both sides. If you have someone who abstains, you know, give them praise for their convictions and staying on their convictions. If you see someone who's doing evangelism, you know, give them praise, you know, try to maintain the unity um, as best as you can, despite holding strong convictions, you know, to the contrary. Because at the end of the day, while this is a heated discussion, it can be had, you know, with, with love, kindness, and exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit um, in order to honor Christ. So basically, whenever we're considering this subject, you want to make sure that you're engaging in thoughtful reflection, prayer, and consideration um, as you go through Romans 14. So you want to make sure that you um, evaluate your personal convictions. You know, does participating in Halloween align with your understanding of scriptural principles, especially those you know discussed in these previous sections and, and the roots of Halloween? Um, and engage in sincere prayer and biblical study. And, and work through it and make sure that you are firm in your position um, before moving forward. Also, don't neglect your church. The application of Romans 14 is not just about individuals, but about one's community and church context. Some churches or denominations may provide specific guidance or teachings regarding Halloween, if the day is even acknowledged at all. Um, so therefore, you should really just consider engaging in open dialogue with you know your leaders and your elders and fellow congregants in order to understand that communal perspective. And then you need to consider age and family dynamics. You know, how are you bestowing um, things into your children, your upbringing? How are you stewarding your children? And you need to balance those personal convictions with family dynamics and with wisdom and discernment. You can also consider from a missional or outreach perspective. You know, you may see it as a great opportunity to go share the gospel, or you may see it as an unnecessary means of participating. Um, but have respect for conscience. You know, Romans 14 underscores the importance of respecting the conscience of others. Those who choose to abstain from Halloween should not judge or look down on those who participate and vice versa. It goes both ways. 
Maintaining an attitude of respect and understanding is essential for preserving unity within the faith community. Um, if, if Paul can write this letter to Jews and Gentiles on things like the Sabbath and things like the Passover, then we can figure it out on Halloween. We can do it right. And the last factor is, you know, the cultural and regional variations. Um, really, Halloween in America is very different than Halloween in different cultures. And so that's something worth considering if you're talking outside of just our national, um, you know, scope. In conclusion, Romans 14 gives us a framework to help us, you know, make a decision, study through it, pray through it, talk with others, you know, have meaningful back and forth with others. You can even have healthy debates. Just do it in love and kindness. I had plenty of conversations during my prepping for these episodes to prep me for this. And so it is essential that we approach this discussion with humility, respect, and an understanding where people are coming from. And then pray for them as they, you know, work through it and pray for them as they approach it, um, as they're actually going through the day. So we can make informed decisions and we can all ensure that we are trying to glorify Christ in these decisions. So let's get into my summary and my conclusions on the subject with all this in mind. All right. First and foremost, I remain unconvinced that Halloween is linked to Samhain, given the lack of historical evidence for Samhain at large and, of course, the evidence for the development of Halloween before the alleged Irish observance. We've, we talked about the, the development of the cult of the saints I, that developed before Samhain's historical record, before the connection between the Irish. I, I remain unconvinced that it's connected to Samhain. Or put another way, I don't believe that Halloween is pagan in so much as it's related to Samhain. Yet, Halloween and All Saints Day, by all accounts, is the result of a close affiliation with the cults of the dead and has many similarities with the pagan pantheon and practices regarding patron-client relationships and shrines, indicating clear pagan roots. In this way, I agree with the Reformers in saying that Halloween does indeed have pagan roots on this religious level of the discussion. Further, the holiday is built upon the cult of the saints, and its rejection, exemplified by Christians over the centuries, leaves it as a Catholic holiday uh, built on doctrines rejected historically by Protestants. Thus, at its roots, you know, pagan or not, it is still generally incompatible with Protestants given why, when, and how the holiday was formed. And so while some Protestants have modified it in order to take it back um, as a Christian holiday, it's impossible to say that they are actually practicing the day as it was formulated. I have a high respect for the saints. I love reading the doctors of the church. However, I do not find that you can take this holiday back and say that you're taking it back while stripping it of all these elements that made it what it was. So it's impossible to say that you're actually practicing the day as it was formulated. Instead, you could say that you're practicing a different version, uh, a more biblical or more reformed, reformed Halloween, reformed All Saints Day. So that's just from that perspective. Now, Reformation Day, in terms of Reformation Day, which I know a lot of people who listen to the show practice, um... It signifies kind of a new course, right? The opposite direction, and it's observed as a Protestant commemoration in various countries. Um, and while while it has been tempting for me to replace Halloween with Reformation Day, I still find it difficult to do because the only reason why I would do it would be to replace Halloween, and I don't see a need for that. I see Halloween the same way I see like St. Patrick's Day. There's a casual acknowledgement and appreciation of what occurred, but I don't really go beyond that. So there's not a reason for that. That, that new establishment of a Christian holiday, right? And I say this um, also because there's kind of a level of irony that the reformers likely would have rejected 
a Reformation Day type celebration. Um, I don't think that they would hold to such an observation. And so I find it kind of too ironic to actually do. Now, when we're speaking about the culture elements stripped of all these religious aspects, the modern adaptions of Halloween are young cultural evolutions, right? We talked about that. The last 500 years, minimally, their, their roots kind of debated. But the basic elements, right, that make up these traditions of you know dressing up and collecting candy, they're not inherently wrong. We have to all admit that they're not inherently wrong. And if there is no negative religious significance attached to it, then there seems to be no problem so long as the Christian does not violate biblical principles and uses wisdom in the stewardship of their children. Um, basically, th there's no reason to suggest that individuals are obligated to adopt the cultural evolution of the observance that is more gore and horror as time goes on, right? In the same way that I'm not obligated to adopt the more cultural elements and commercialized holidays that are Christian in the roots, such as Christmas and Easter. Now, that all said, the cultural observance from, from everything I've gathered is so closely linked with elements that are contrary to the Christian worldview that it becomes very difficult for me to justify partaking. There is no doubt when you look at local shops, festivals, parades, upcoming films, commercials, etc., what the focus of Halloween is in this culture. And you can blame it on capitalism, you can blame it on cessationalism, you can blame it on all those factors, but the point remains that that is what it is tied to, that is what people see when they think of Halloween, and that is something worth considering seriously. Because I have seen many times where Christians have created alternatives to Halloween, but they're also critiqued by outsiders for compromise on Christian values in order to participate in the day. Now, while the quote-unquote games of the day are not inherently wrong, the games cannot be detached from their context, nor can one deny that the only reason why these games are being played on that day is because that is what the culture is doing. So for the last nine years, my family and I have not participated in Halloween or any modification of it. Um, that includes Reformation Day. We just haven't. Um, and after having many great conversations with individuals on the spectrum, I found myself just landing back to my original position. I remember being asked about, you know, do you celebrate Halloween a couple times? And I always quit back with no, because I'm neither pagan nor papist. And I want you to hear me that if you celebrate, I'm not saying that as an indictment against you. I'm saying that's just my mentality on the whole situation. If I take the three broad categories of paganism, Catholicism, and, you know, grotesque secularism, I have reasons to not participate in every single one of those categories. I don't participate in the Catholic holiday because I'm not Catholic, I'm a Protestant. I don't participate in the pagan elements because I'm a Christian. I don't participate in the secular gruesome stuff because I don't believe that they match up with my worldview. My primary thrust overall is that I'm not Catholic. That's really where I stand on it because knowing the history of where All Saints Day came from, I'm just like, I don't care about this day. Now, here's an important caveat that I, I want to throw in here because a lot of people misunderstand uh, the position of abstaining and kind of charge it with, well, you're just fearful or, you know, you think that pagans own the day. My, my position is not that I believe that Catholics are pagans on the day and I'm abandoning it, but rather I just treat the day like any other day. I don't give this quote unquote holy day any significance. It's just another day on my calendar. In fact, last year things passed by and I didn't even realize that Halloween had passed by because, you know, you, whenever you have kids, the days just kind of blur together. But ultimately, from my perspective, trying to find a way to observe the day in some other way than it already is being observed is firstly acknowledging that it's something worthy of time and effort. And secondly, a matter of mere cultural pressure. And I can kind of tie this in with Cinco de Mayo. You know, where I live, Cinco de Mayo is a big thing. Uh, and it's a big thing about the heritage of my city. And, but the only reason why I would go is because I either felt like it was worth the time and effort to go because it was significant enough to go, 
or because the cultural pressure made me feel like I should go. But in either case, I just don't. It's just another day that passes on the calendar because neither of those things are true for me. The same thing goes for Halloween. Halloween for me, it's just not worth the time or effort to even bother trying to think of alternatives. In other words, Halloween is just not significant enough for me to care about. Like, and so it's not me saying like pagans and Catholics take over the day. It's saying that like y'all's day means nothing. That's, that's how I perceive of it. Um, and I'll be honest, there is a lot of cultural pressure, especially when you have kids to, to do it. My daughter will come home on occasion, you know, with her friends are prepping for Halloween or something and they'll, we'll have a conversation about why we don't do it. And she understands and we move on. But really the only time that I start thinking about, well, should I rethink my position? It's about that cultural pressure. You know, is my kid missing out on something fun? So generally people look at those who abstain, you know, as dreadfully fearful of the day. Yet most I've met are kind of like me. It's just another day on the calendar, like any other religious holiday. We don't celebrate Muslim holidays. We don't cel celebrate Jewish holidays. We don't, I don't celebrate Cinco de Mayo. Just name some. And you could say, you know, sure, it's very popular. It's observed by a lot of folk. But if we were in a Muslim-dominated country, I wouldn't go observe the most popular Muslim holiday of the year. You know, like, that, that's not a factor for me. And some people see that as valid reasoning. Some people don't because of the, the popularity and the prominence thing. But that, that's just the way I view it. So whenever I look at my life and my kid's life, you know, we have candy and costumes all the time. So there's little reason to really consider the day worthy of the hassle when it comes to it each year. As we know, those costumes are expensive and the candy is expensive. It's commercialization. But that whole idea that, you know, we have candy and costumes all the time, you can say the same thing about outreach. We have outreach events and festivities all the time year round. So I'm not sure that it's necessarily a good argument to say, well, we can make sure that we do that on Halloween. It is true that you'll reach a good amount of people that are out and about, but you could do that at any event, at any time. So the question is, why in Halloween? And I think if we're all really honest, it's because people want to participate in Halloween, and that's a good way to do it while incorporating your faith, right? There's also something to be said about living in a suburb. If you live in a neighborhood and you're sitting at your door and someone rings your doorbell like every couple of minutes to get candy and you have the opportunity to hand out a tract, you're in a really interesting position. Take advantage of it. Like, I... I can't really see a downside to that. I'm not sure that people who abstain generally find something wrong with that. It's a good opportunity. It's the same thing as if a Jehovah's Witness came on your door. Of course, you're going to take a second to like, hey, you know, you should know the deity of Christ, man. That's important. So I think that that's an interesting opportunity without necessarily having to go out and be in that position uh, and all the different uh, dynamics that come with that. And to be honest... I'm not in that position. I live on land where my door is unreachable, which is kind of sad because I don't get the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. Um, I, on occasion, I wish I do. But perhaps if I lived in a neighborhood, I would be more inclined to at least pass out tracks and candy. I can't really say because I'm not in that situation, but I see the value in that. Um, but what I do think that everyone needs to come to grips with is that regardless of how you are participating in the modern celebration, the general populace, their perception is that it's that it's Samhain, it's wicked, or it's Catholic. And so while you may be eating meat from outside of a pagan temple, if you're in that temple, it will be assumed that you're eating sacrificed meat as a pagan, right? Wait a minute, Nick. What, what about Christmas and Easter, right? People argue that it's pagan or Catholic. Sure. But fundamentally, what Halloween versus Easter and Christmas boil down to is completely different. The latter, Easter and Christmas boil down to Christ, nativity, and the resurrection. So when a pagan looks at you and scoffs that you're celebrating a pagan holiday around Christmas, which it's not pagan, spoiler alert, um, they are laughing at you because according to them, 
you think you're observing Christ's nativity, but you're actually celebrating a pagan holiday. And the same goes for Easter, right? Happy Ishtar. They think that they're celebrating the resurrection, but it's really Ishtar, which is not. Spoiler alert. But on the other hand, when a pagan looks at a Christian celebrating Halloween, there is not that fundamental link to Christ and his work still. So I think this is a crucial difference, especially when we consider our witness as Christians. So I would argue that here, abstaining could be superior, if nothing else, then ironically, for witness. There's one more point to consider, and it's this. If the topic is convoluted, which it is, and if the topic is so questionable, which it is, and if there are no real, significant, or weighty reasons to participate, it would seem more wise to abstain. It's kind of that better safe than sorry thing. I remember we were talking about, you know, would you use um, heretics literature or music or something like that in your church service? And you can answer yes, and you can give reasons for it. You can say, well, because, you know, there's truth in it. You can find the truth in it. You can redeem it, all this other stuff. But it always boils down to, is it worth it to play with it, even if it's questionable, right? And so that may not be a valid argument, but whenever I weigh the reasons for or against observing there are more reasons to abstain almost every single time. Every time that I, I stack this you know, topic up in my head, the only reason I can think of to participate is to have fun with my kids, which I think is the key point for a lot of parents. But still, for me, that isn't enough. I mean, I, I do things with my kids all the time. They get candy far too much. They have a basket downstairs. They don't need more candy. They have costumes already. And so whenever I weigh that in conjunction with that pressure to have fun with my kids and let them go out and do this cultural thing, it's just not enough. The day has enough baggage that there appears to be little, if any, benefit to observing. That's where I boil everything down. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.23, everything is lawful, but not everything is beneficial. But nonetheless, for all of you who don't abstain, in that same text, Paul says, in everything you do, do it for the glory of the Lord and that my conscience cannot bind your liberty. And so that's my position. And no matter what we do, we need to think about how we're conducting ourselves and stewarding our children and being a witness for Christ, whether it's through abstaining or whether it's through observing. If you are one of the abstainers that just hammers on every single person that observes it based off of one of the positions above, you may need us to sit back and think about your approach because there's a lot of approaches that are not glorifying to God. You can disagree on this and you can do it well. And that goes for the other side. The other side does the same thing to those of us who abstain. Think of us as, you know, these uptight legalists or, you know, fearful. And so this is a long way of saying have charity on both sides. No matter which position you take, love the Lord, love your brothers and sisters in the faith. And if you disagree with me on this position, I pray that I came across as respectful, that you can follow my position without it coming across as insulting. I didn't mean it to. This is one of those things where we're going to have strong positions, right? And so I may say something here and there that may be like, whoa, hey, man, why'd you have to take that shot? I, If I did, I didn't mean to. But that wraps up this particular um, saga on Halloween. I probably won't be speaking about this topic ever again because I just do not care. And I really mean that. That's one of the reasons why I haven't had an episode on it. I care far more about Christmas and Easter than I do Halloween. Because Halloween, to me, is just another day on the calendar that I do not observe. Um, so, you guys have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. And next week, we're going to continue our Reformation series on 
myths of the Reformation. We're going to go through some myths of the Reformation and counter them. God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.